This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. This is your host, Darren Hood, and thank you once again for taking time out of your busy schedules to hear what I have to say about about user experience today. We're going to dive in again very quickly because we have so much to cover as we're trying to wrap up the topic of overcoming the mirage of UX ambiguity. And by way of very brief recap, is there confusion associated with UX today? Absolutely. There is there there is reason to feel the way that many people are feeling today, and there's a lot of just cause, a lot of strange things going on. There are a lot of, a lot of seemingly conflicting things going on. It is, however, a mirage. That is my contention today. That the confusion that many people are experiencing, the confusion that many people are claiming, there is a way to actually do away with this and for all of us to get on the same page and focus on things the same way and have the same mind and the same judgment, the same perceptions with regard to user experience. So I'm trying to identify many of these things first and we're going to wrap up the entire series next week by talking about one nice broad way to approach this. I've been talking about it a little bit sprinkling some hints here and there about what we can do to make things better with regard to UX, how we can get on the straight and narrow with regard to UX, how we can 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 dissipate all of these different things that are going on and 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 work to make the world of UX, the the discipline, the landscape of user experience a much better place, a much more profitable place a much more beneficial place where our value is not questioned, but it is understood, it is embraced, and it is labored for. That's where we need to be. That's where it was back in the early 2000s. That's where it was in 2010. It's in the last five years or so that things have really gone off the rails quite a bit. That, that's how long it's been happening. Uh, it's been going on. The momentum started just before that, but Let's just continue addressing what we're talking about right now on the subtopic. I promised to pick up where I left off last week. And and last week, I started talking about one of the, what I think is the major, the, the, the biggest contributor to the perception of ambiguity in the UX world, and that is willful misrepresentation. Some of these examples that I talked about last week and I'm going to talk about today are more direct, causal elements and some are indirect. I I talked about some indirect ones last week. I talked about inaccurate articles and misleading social media posts associated with UX. I talked about the imposter problem when it comes to job applicants and how people are willing to fudge and to misrepresent who they are when they're applying for jobs, leading to a lot of people who are not UX professionals Maybe they were developers, maybe they were just visual designers, maybe they were something else and they just felt that they could sort of uh, sort of wiggle their way into a UX position and some of us sort of chuckle probably when we hear that, but the truth of the matter is that it's happening 
folks and and it is causing some some issues it so they are willing to misrepresent who they were willing to misrepresent their experience i know a person who just to uh, talk about this for an extra moment here i know of a person who has expressed a desire to get into ux that's fine you want to get into ux no problem i wish you all the best but the way that you do it this is a discipline that revolves around ethics we have to labor for trust of our leadership, trust of our stakeholders from our stakeholders. And so if you don't proceed and carry out your business in an ethical manner, it will result in not obtaining trust of the people that you do work for. Trust that you need in order to be successful in the work that you do. If a person is misrepresenting who they are on their resume in the interview, do you really think they're going to carry themselves in an ethical manner? And do you think that they're going to be able to carry on supposedly the business of UX and not be discovered by someone who knows better? Because there's enough flip side to that that I'm going to talk about in another episode down the line. Because and I do believe I mentioned this before. If you know what you're doing and the people in the business don't know anything about UX, the same type thing will happen. They will think you're not bringing any value, but they don't really know what you're doing or what you're supposed to be doing. I've experienced it over the course of my career. I'm sure many of you have experienced that over the course of your career. I had someone once ask me where in the world I got all the data from that I was presenting to them. Well, it was raw data that was coming from some ethnographic studies that I had done. They were more upset about the truths that were reflected in the data than they were about who I was or what I was doing, but they just didn't want to hear anything. And I said, I've said this on a few other shows. People don't like anybody telling them that their baby is ugly, so to speak. We figuratively bring that up. That's the way we describe it. But, you know, if the product has issues, don't we want to know about it up front? If the product has issues, if there are pain points, don't we want to discover those pain points and then try to resolve them? So at any rate, I'm going to want to go on too long with this issue, but this imposter thing with job applicants is a big deal. It is happening. And because people are willing to do it, that's what puts us all at risk. You don't even work for the company where it happened and it poses a problem for you but and for me, potentially. And we need to know and understand that today. The third example I talked about last week, I shared a story where I worked for a company and I was doing a heuristic analysis, or I completed, rather, a heuristic analysis on a product that we were trying to customize for our own use within the company. So we're basically white boxing it, in a sense. And I conducted a heuristic analysis, presented the information, and we were starting to do another design on another part of the experience. And so I performed another heuristic analysis. And someone who, a boot camp graduate, I made sure to say that, on the, on the show last week, a boot camp graduate who knew nothing about heuristics, who did not appreciate heuristics, had never performed a heuristic analysis, did not know how to ascribe any value to the work that I had done, uh, basically downplayed it. And so also did another stakeholder who was behind the technology that we were customizing for our use. And that person made a statement once and they said that the heuristics were outdated letting you know that he doesn't know anything about heuristics because there's no such thing as an outdated 
heuristic and he could not disprove anything that I had stated. He knew nothing about UX. So it was pretty interesting. So in that case, willing to misrepresent what I had done and what I had presented as an expert artifact. So when these types of things happen, it was somewhat indirect, willing to misrepresent me, not knowing that they were misrepresenting UX and that they were downplaying some of the value that UX brings. However, those types of things are what creates problems for us today. And so they ended up putting value on things that really weren't valuable and downplaying things that were. So in a sense, there's still some willful misrepresentation that's taking place there. So let's let's pick up from there. And I'm going to try to share some additional some additional examples here today and see how much I can cover in the short time that we have left. The first example today has to do with the issue of portfolios. Now that this is a we're going to have a uh, an episode or two that are talking about nothing but issues associated with portfolios. And you would think that portfolios are not a problem for those of us in the UX world. But let me shed some light on some of you that might not be familiar with how it is that portfolios are creating a problem for UX folks. First and foremost, UX does not contribute to the presentation layer, not directly. We are concerned about aesthetics. We're concerned about how things look. But the artifacts, the deliverables, your wireframes, your low fidelity prototypes, mock-up is, that's something that's going to reflect the, the, the presentation layer. And actually, not a lot of UX people are very good at putting together mock-ups. There are not a lot of, of UX people that are good at visual design. So some of us can do mock-ups, but most of us cannot. We are not... People who make things pretty. That's not the job of the UX professional. However, when you think about a portfolio, would you like to give somebody a portfolio? I'm going to use the word again. And your portfolio was full of ugly things. And when I say ugly, I'm using that term loosely. Things that nobody really wants to look at. Things that aren't sexy. Things that don't have a lot of pizzazz. They don't have a lot of pop. They don't. They don't draw. They don't draw out a, a, a huge emotional design. Because when you think about the things that we do, your data, your A/B test, the the card sorting template that you use, the things that we do in UX don't make for good portfolios. Have you ever thought about that? Today, if you really show people what you're doing from a UX perspective, is it going to get a lot of the people who are reviewing the portfolios excited? No, it's not. Matter of fact, I actually developed the mindset that if a portfolio looks too good, we're not even going (laughs) to, unless we're talking about doing some visual design stuff, or we're talking about going from from the beginning of the project to the end so you can show where we ended up. Yeah. Now, if that's there, I understand that because you're telling a story, which is what a portfolio should do. However, um, if everything in the portfolio looks fantastic, it's highly likely you're not looking at the work of a UX professional. You're looking at the work of somebody that's trying to get into UX. And unfortunately, because a lot of people who are looking at these portfolios don't know what UX is and do not truly know how to evaluate UX work. They fall for 
this beautiful portfolio that they were given. Take this one step further. Do you realize that portfolios in the earlier days were not being requested when it comes to UX professionals? Um, it, it, someone who, remember, a lot of people, they say UI, UX, no such thing. To them, UX and UI are interchangeable acronyms. They are not. What happened in the early days was that people felt, well, this visual designer gave me a portfolio. This person is, we need some UX people. I want to see their portfolios too. And so what happened was this, this job search deliverable, if we can call it that, this job search deliverable, which was requested for other positions, folks started asking for the same thing when it came to trying to evaluate UX professionals. So an artifact, uh, an interview artifact, a job search artifact that was required of a different class of creative uh, uh, creative designer, for lack of a better term at the moment, they started asking for portfolios. And eventually people started making their, port their portfolios looking better and better and better and better. And as those demands on the portfolios increase, so also did the wrong people getting into the new UX jobs increase. There is a there is a direct parallel in, in in the increases with both. Because nobody wants to see my wireframes. Nobody wants to see my sitemaps. Nobody wants to see the types of things that you would normally see. Oh, they like seeing experience maps and journey maps, but that's different because those they look good. People want to see that. But basically speaking, I thought I'd throw that in there. But but basically speaking, we don't make the pretty stuff. So if you give somebody a a portfolio that really only reflects the the base elements of what UX people do, you're actually going to end up with a problem on your hands. So that has created a lot of ambiguity in the world of UX. It really stems from it when you think about it because people don't understand what UX is. So how do you evaluate a UX person? Folks don't know how to do it. We need to redo. We need to, uh, that this whole thing about portfolios with UX people needs to be redone. It just needs to tell a story. And, and again, we're going to talk about that on another episode later. And I want to get as far as I can with these examples today. There's a mindset and there was a, a post on LinkedIn, next example, where somebody was saying, you know, everybody has so something to offer. Why do you not want the juniors talking about these things? Why do you not want juniors speaking at events? And why do you not want juniors doing X, Y, and Z? It was interesting because in this setting, nobody said that juniors shouldn't be doing anything. The, the post that came up was talking about how people who are not skilled at something whether you like it or not today, people who aren't skilled at something don't have a lot to say yet. And people say, well, they, they need to be able to build their confidence. Yeah, you do. Well, do the same thing the rest of us did. We went and we learned. We, we, we bumped our heads sometimes. We learned what to do, what not to do. We, we got into a position where we, we developed skill, we developed knowledge. And then when we reached a point where we could share information and bring value to certain discussions, that's when we began to speak. People want to speak now before they know anything. And so now this is a source of, it's contributing to the supposed ambiguity because you have people who don't know anything and they're willing to put on these fronts 
And and some of them will say, well, you know, fake it till you make it. Well, that's dangerous. We need that needs to be stopped. We need folks need patience. They need to wait. Yeah, okay, you might want to speak, but if your desire to speak about UX and your desire to be heard, your desire to have a for a, a voice is greater than the potential for you to bring value, that's a bit on the dysfunctional side. And so if that continues, then the ambiguity that's being fed into the UX world is going to continue as well. It's another source. That's why you have all these terrible articles on Medium. That's why you have people speaking at conferences and and conferences bringing in people with sensationalistic titles instead of things that we really need to know so we can be better at our craft. Those are contributing to the problem today. So people aren't going to like me for saying it, but I'm not here to be liked. I'm here to help the UX community grow and thrive. Uh, Folks can either get better or they can get off the ship. That's, that's basically how it works. You don't get to go faster just because you want to. You have to do the same thing that the rest of us did as we continue to grow again in skill and knowledge and building our UX acumen. So everybody does not have something to offer. You would not hire a, a, an unskilled person to take care of your lawn. You would not hire an unskilled person to take care of your teeth. You would not hire an unskilled person to take care of your vehicle. But all of a sudden, when it comes to UX, folks want all the unskilled people to carry a lot of weight. That's just really ridiculous. And frankly, it's hypocritical today. We can't, we can't do those types of things. The last example I want to cover today has to do with the issue of gatekeeping in the world of UX that again, this comes from usually from juniors, from people who are just getting involved in UX. They don't like it. When you talk about standards, they don't like it. When someone talks about something that they need to do in order to really become skilled and and to build on on quality, to get on the quality track in the UX world. Again, we all had to do it. And everybody who's getting into UX now, they have to do the same thing. It, it's UX is not going to be redefined for you because you can't meet the you can't meet the charge. You can't cut the mustard. We're not going to redefine it uh, we, we, this is the age where everybody on the on the little league baseball team gets a trophy no matter how good they are when back in the day you only you had to make the team and if you were not good you do not play um that same mindset is has come into into a, a reality in the world of ux today where people who don't have the talent want just as much credit as the people who do well that's creating ambiguity so consequently those of us who get accused of gatekeeping, I'm one, I get accused of gatekeeping and I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing because I understand that those people are really just passively, aggressively engaging in gaslighting. If you need to develop in a certain area, then just develop in that certain area. Does that sound like gatekeeping? No, it doesn't. We're telling people, get qualified, grow your skill and knowledge. Here's where you can get that skill and knowledge. Apply yourself to it, practice it, get better at it. And we will welcome you with open arms. Does that sound like gatekeeping? Because that's all that we have ever said, myself and other people in my shoes. All we want is for people to follow the same process that we follow so that people can develop of a truth and bring value to their organizations, bring value for their users, bring value for their businesses and build trustworthy acumen that allows them to go out and speak, tapping into the last example, that allows them to share their knowledge with others. And the U.S. community would be in fantastic shape if we could get people to buy into this. 
But for some reason, and I say that loosely because I know exactly why, but for some reason, that's not happening. When I came along in UX, when I first came along, I wasn't screaming at Jacob Nielsen. I wasn't rejecting what he was saying. I wasn't rejecting Susan Weinshank and accusing her of being a gatekeeper. I wasn't uh, uh, poo-pooing off the, the different standards and the, the articles and the, the fantastic things that were being presented by leaders of UX during that time. But in this day and time, in the last five years in particular, that's exactly what is happening. And so gatekeeping, the accusation of gatekeeping, which is really just quality control, is flipping the script on what's really happening out there. And as a result, people are confused, especially the people who believe the reports of gatekeeping instead of engaging in critical thinking, listening to the people who were being accused and digesting it properly. If that happened, we're trying to pull the generation behind us up so they can be better. And people are trying to paint us as being the bad guys. Those of you listening to this podcast, do I sound like a bad guy to you or am I trying to help you get better? In order to overcome all these things, and it's something I'm going to talk about in about a couple of weeks, is that we need to embrace rediscovery. We need to understand what we bring to the table, what we don't, and then make sure that we are honest with ourselves and do what it takes to get better. If these things happen, we can overcome the mirage of UX ambiguity. Folks, we're going to wrap up this topic next week. So thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, this is your host, Darren Hood, the world of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.